0: All right, welcome back to Transparency. We took a a bit of a spring break, but we are back and uh, very grateful to be back here with uh, Debbie Hayton, uh, someone we've known from from Twitter for a long time and just the general uh, small swimming pool that is uh, 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 the wrong kind of trans, let's say. Debbie here is the, uh, the only autogynophile, it seems, um, or at least the only person <laughs> willing to kind of talk about that experience openly while the rest of, anyway, no, no judgment. I, I can understand why, why that's such a difficult thing for most people to talk about, but very grateful you're doing it and uh, welcome to Transparency.
1: Oh, you're very welcome, Aaron. Nice to be with you both. It's nice
2: to finally meet you because uh, we've been interacting
1: online for so long and this is the first time we've had a chance to just sit and have a conversation. Well, it is, isn't it? You send brief messages and text messages, but uh, it's good to be able to talk to people uh, as properly as we can across on two sides, on the opposite sides of the Atlantic.
0: So, where should we where should we get started? I'm a terrible interviewer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, what we were talking about originally is is that we we all three see um, see transition or what we've done in a very a very similar way that. That we that we're we're all three happy with where we are. I mean, there there you know certainly regrets here and there with details uh, of the process for sure. But I mean, ultimately, um, and not, not to put words in people's mouths, but um, kind of like we we know that what we did was a fallacy. It may not have been a good decision for our health. May not have been a good decision for our um, for the, the people in our lives, our 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 families and you know close relationships and whatnot. Um, but we made that decision. We now see that maybe we should have handled it entirely differently when we did it uh, but we've done it we're not we don't regret where we are now um but we I'm, i'm i'm kind of spitballing here and somebody else pick up the rope you know what i'm talking about
1: i think yeah i know what you're talking about aaron it's uh yeah i can emphasize what you're saying i transitioned because i thought there was some kind of woman and i thought i had to transition to uh to find my inner self and let myself—all all those, all those, uh, all those tropes that we hear—you know—I I would have, I would have said every one of them. 10 years down the line, I realized I'm no kind of woman. And the promise, what transition promised it, it didn't deliver. It delivered something else. Uh, and it delivered me as the person I am now. And uh, I'm quite happy with who I am and uh, I'm content with who I am. And if I hadn't transitioned, then I would be somebody else now. And I'm, I don't want to be somebody else. So I guess it's made me who I am and uh, I'll work with it. But uh, it, didn't just let's say it didn't fulfill the promises which uh which i was assured it would deliver it didn't what what do you think some of those promises were
2: that you anticipated
1: well i think that it would uh it you know it would fulfill me as an individual so i'd be whole and i'd be complete i was already fulfilled as an individual you know there's only me here and there's only ever been me here uh but uh and it's uh, also what it was promised that I was going through a really tough time mentally ten years ago, and transition was promised as the solution to all this, and it, it, it really didn't. It, it was a it was a it was a it was a plan. It was a strategy. It was a mission almost I was on, uh, to actually do this, do this, and tick things off on a list, but it didn't. It. It didn't uh, bring uh, contentment and psychological fulfillment with who I was. Uh, the only thing that did that was self-awareness that came later. And I said that transition itself was, uh, didn't, didn't fulfill its promises. What it did do, it forced me into a level of introspection and a level of just self-analysis, which actually I did find out who I was and why I was and why I was doing this, that I don't think I would have done if I transitioned uh, if I hadn't transitioned. So although it didn't fulfill its promises directly, it, I think it's left me now, 10 years on, in a pretty good place. I'm content with who I am, I'm self-aware, and I'm, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm happy with who I am. And those psychological, the psychological torment, which I was going through 10 years ago, is a lifetime away.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. How did you understand what trans was at that time,
2: at the time that you, you transitioned?
1: Uh, what I thought it was, at the t- I I I bought this "Born in the Wrong Body," uh, you know, uh, philosophy. You know, I was I was convinced I had this female gender identity, which had been, uh, you know, by some misfortune, I'd picked up the wrong kind of body when the bodies were given out, and uh, I had to transition to uh, put that right. That's that's what I believed. Uh, but but you know, so I, I was pretty orthodox in my uh, in my views as, well, as far as trans people go, and uh, that's what I uh, that's what I believed, and that's what I uh, you know I I, uh, I I did what that's why I did what I did. But it was a belief, and this was the issue when friends and relatives were saying, well, what is this, and why are you doing this? I couldn't really answer. And uh, it, that always left me in a position of a uh, greater turmoil, really, that I knew I had to do something and I knew I was going to do it, but I really didn't know why. And when anybody tried to quiz me and say, why are you doing this, really? Uh, I had no answers apart from I've got to do it because I've got to do it. And as somebody like me, that was not very, uh, it, it, it was not very satisfying, to say the least.
0: Yeah, yeah, I had the same the same experience um, with with that that kind of compulsion that you you must do this, and then and then when somebody comes along that's kind of like like kind of puts the reality of it back in your face, and it's like, what does this even mean? Why are you doing this? You just you, you realize well, you don't even let yourself realize that it that it's not true. You just you just make you do some sort of mental loophole to con- to be able to continue in the trajectory that you want to be continuing on towards transition it it very much feels like this is something i have to do i can't really articulate why um and you just yeah just continue and continue
1: and it becomes a project so this is a project first of all you do this you you know you uh change your presentation a bit you change some documents you change more documents you take some hormones you get yourself on a list for this surgery you you know Uh, it's it's a project and you you get You get on with it. And and this becomes the focus of your life. It's the next step on from this. You get to the end of that project and then you think, what was all that about? And that's why I worry about, you know, I I, I worry about other trans people because you get to the end of that. And it was a project. and I got to the end and I I was really no close to working out who I was or why I was doing it.
2: So it just, it occurred to me that, I mean, before I transitioned, I was um, in the butch femme scene. And, and a lot of the butches that I'd known over the years described an experience that sounded very similar to mine of, of kind of, um, you know, modeling their identities around the, the males in their lives, not, not the females in their lives, and, and presented very masculine, often had male nicknames, um, used male pronouns. They, they were clear that they were women and everyone in the community was clear that they were women, but, but a very masculine identity. And, and when you're surrounded by that kind of community and seeing that exist in the community, um, before I learned about trans, that's how I made sense of it is this must be just something related to homosexuality, because there's lots of effeminate gay men and lots of, of butch women who, who, Seem to have a similar experience of childhood gender dysphoria that I did, but that must not be the case for those with autogynephilia because I don't imagine there's a community of men who
1: openly talk about it. No, uh, <laughs> uh, no, it's not the sort. It's not the sort of thing that men talk about. Uh, I think it's more common than uh, people realize. I think autogynephilia is. Uh, it's not. It's unusual, but it's, it, it's, uh, it happens, but men don't talk about it. To uh, talk about wanting to wanting to become a woman and, uh, and fancying yourself, which is effectively what it is, is being sexually attracted to yourself. This, 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 this is taboo for men. Men don't talk about this at all. And I think that's part of the problem in that, uh, in that we've got these issues going on, but uh, men don't talk about it. Perhaps if we talked about it a bit more, we might understand ourselves a bit more. But uh, uh, chance would be a fine thing. Not that it made any thing?
2: difference for me because I still transitioned. <laughs> but you know, I, I, but that was because um, you know you said you understood trans based on the cultural narrative, and of course we would. That was the only publicly endorsed explanation for what we experienced. Was this you know gender identity concept or? I didn't really understand I didn't really believe in a gender identity I believed in the met, more the medical model I thought well there must be something neurologically different about our brains that caused you know gender identity disorder and that's and that's why we, we experience this but what the pivotal moment for me was I was um, sitting there watching a documentary on TV about trans kids and they were describing this experience they didn't call it gender dysphoria but they they described that experience and it's like well that's exactly what I what I experienced as a kid and they framed it as if you have these experiences it doesn't mean you have gender dysphoria that's not how they framed it it means that you're a trans person
0: mm-hmm.
2: and it was like a light bulb went off I mean it was at a kind of a vulnerable time in in my life so maybe a little more Um, gullible than I might have been otherwise but that was that was and has been the narrative since then is you are a trans person as a type of personhood if you experience this and so it completely flipped my identity from okay so I'm not actually a dyke after all I'm actually this trans person because I obviously have this experience that they were describing So that seemed like a really logical conclusion to draw when, when it seems like our whole world is is sending us this message that that experience means you are a trans person. And then it became important to me to transition because that's what would differentiate me from the butch lesbians.
1: Yeah, that concept of the trans person, I think is so, is so important yet so it's such a fallacy. You know, to create this separate type of people who have got some special knowledge about themselves were credited with almost having superhuman powers in uh, being able to make discern what it means to be trans and uh, and be able to uh, pass judgment on things that other people can't. And it is nonsense. You know, the idea that there is a type of person who is trans, uh, you yeah, know, a trans person. And you can go back from there one step, as you did. You've got a person who is struggling with gender dysphoria. But uh, we can also go back one step from then So, say, well, what is this thing called gender dysphoria? It, it was an artificial, uh, artificial diagnosis, really, to gatekeep some treatment. You know, once medicine has got a treatment protocol, it needs to have a diagnosis in order to access it. You know, that's where medicine works. So they created gender identity disorder, which was, well, we don't like having disorders, do we not? You know, we don't want to be disordered. We all want to be uh, ordered in line. You know, that's what we want to be. So... It was it was renamed gender dysphoria. And, I, you know, we talk is talking about becoming gender incongruence if it hasn't already become, but really, there was just behind this, there is uh, the psychological conditions, who knows how many of those there are, and the, uh, sim- the symptom of those is this compulsion to transition. You know, and if we if we started talking about this compulsion to transition, we may be we may strip some of the mystique uh, mystique from it, and then say, well, what is going on here? Why do why do people of both sexes have this bizarre and uh, bizarre uh, compulsion to transition to present themselves in the way in the same way as the opposite sex? you know, why, why, what's going on here? How can we help these people? And uh, can we talk to these people to try and understand what's going on? But it seems to me, you know, Aaron, by uh, creating this person, uh, this trans person, we just bypass all that. So mm. we, uh, we affirm people's inexpert uh, di- self-diagnosis and we understand nothing. It's tragic, really.
0: I keep going back to how much of it I think so. The vast majority of this this is fueled by adding the T to the LGBT, and it just it just turns people's brains off as to what trans is. What you know, yeah, gender dysphoria is many many different things that we call the same thing, but it's clearly coming from very different internal experiences. Um, but but if you but because of that association, the T with the LGBT. It's like if you ask someone, why, why do you want to transition? It's like, well, because I'm trans, they, they, they conceptualize it like you're trying to ask somebody, well, why are you attracted to the same sex? That's obviously quite offensive, you know, but like, and so if you apply that same logic to why do you want to transition, it's, it's, it's you know, bigoted to, to, to address why somebody uh, wants to take these really, really just dramatic medical steps for, for why, you know?
1: Yeah. And, uh, and why, and we just don't ask those, we, we just don't ask enough questions of people to say, why do you want to do this? And, uh, and what's the psychological driver behind this? We, we, we don't understand that because there's research doesn't happen because you're questioning somebody's identity. You're, uh, denying somebody's and invalidating somebody's you know somebody and it's not that at all what we're trying to do is what we should be trying to do is trying to uh, understand people so that once if we as understanding will help people uh, understand themselves and and live live with their own bodies we can make cosmetic changes to our bodies but we're effectively the same people in the same bodies that we've ever been and uh, how can we uh, how can we help people uh, Live that life better, without—and you know—we've got to be we got to be honest here. Without making some uh, pretty drastic changes to our bodies, which uh, come with significant health risks at the time, uh, down the line, who knows? You know, who knows what the long-term prognosis are uh, for a uh, transplant? Because nobody's done any research into it, and uh, the impact on our families is—is is really profound. Uh, as a friend suggested, as a trans friend said to me when I transitioned, you got to remember that your families transition at the same time, and they get no benefit from it whatsoever. Yeah, all this goes on, and uh, and we just don't ask these questions. And uh, yeah, it, it, I just find it, I just find it really uh, unsatisf- unsatisfactory. And uh, so you, uh, I make, I, I make my statements really just just to make a point. You know, I've got my. Uh, my t-shirt that got me into a lot of hot water. So trans trans women are men get over it. Oh dear me, that got me into a lot of a lot of bother, did that? But really, that's that's I've taken it one step further, you know. The really it should say that trans women are men with a psychological disorder, uh, get over it. And if we get over those psychological disorders and don't see them as pejoratives, just saying them as the mm-hmm. peculiarities that make us who we are, then we really can understand ourselves and be ourselves rather. And trying to deny this because it just seems to me that uh, if we don't ask these questions and we don't try to understand ourselves then we're the ones who are denying ourselves because we're uh, yep. creating some uh, fallacy that we're really the opposite sex when, when we're not.
2: At what point did you learn about autogynophilia and realize that that fit your... Ooh.
1: I, I, I knew about it when I was I was transitioning. So, you know, I, I, I got involved in trans groups around 2010, 2011, other groups. And autogonophilia was sort of thing that was talked about, but not talked about. It was a huge elephant in the room. And it was almost on, on, from the male to female uh, trans people, male transsexuals, call us what you like, I don't really mind. Uh, it almost seemed to be that there was... There was good transsexuals and these, the, these sort of autogynophiles, but we don't want to talk about those. Those were a different group, and we separated ourselves off from that. And it's artificial because you can't. Uh, so I knew about it, I knew about it at the time, but sort of said, that's nothing to do with me. To me, autogynophiles were men with gross psychological problems that manifested themselves in, uh, in ways that, I, that my transsexualism didn't manifest itself in me, really. And, uh, you know, so it, I just didn't identify with the, uh, that public face of autogynophilia, which I saw. So I denied it and thought it's nothing to do with me. Uh, later, I started. Uh, I started reading about it and, and looking at it. And every time you read about it, you read a bit more. You, you eventually put it. Down, you, you, you keep putting it down because you really don't want to read anymore. But I kept reading a bit more and thinking, "Oh, maybe, maybe." But no, that was that was always the kiss. And then it was a conversation with Miranda Yardley, another another male transsexual. I don't know if you've talked to Miranda. Uh, I read it, yeah. Yeah, and Miranda kept uh, saying, have you read Anne Lawrence's stuff? And I said, no. And uh, so Miranda kept kept trying to persuade me to read Anne Lawrence, uh, who is uh, transsexual, but also somebody who accepts the autogynophilic drivers in there. So I read read, uh, some of Anne Lawrence's work, and I thought there might be something here. But I think... So that was 2017, 2018, it was probably it was after I started campaigning publicly on this and I'd become more aware of who I was. I was more confident in who I was. And you start reading this thinking, yeah. And I think the point was when I realised that by its nature, autogynephilia wasn't uh, wasn't a negative outworking of the overconsumption of porn, which I think is sometimes, uh, is sometimes, uh, is sometimes understood. What uh, I, how I understand it now is it's almost like the, that stands on its head rather than saying, you know, men uh, read, t- men look at too much porn and it gets worse and worse and worse in a cycle. And then it, it drives autogynophilia. I think it's the other way around. I think autogynophilia is, uh, it is uh, something which uh, I think is in it. And I think it's uh it's 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 within us. Uh and I think uh you know men with an interest in porn can obviously uh pick up on uh, pick up on those uh, on the on those sort of genres and it can exacerbate it. But I think it's something which is there, and I think it's something which is within us. And you know, men can be sexually attracted to anything, really. And uh I, f- I sometimes told the story of a friend who worked uh you know, in the emergency room in a hospital, saying so the uh, the the objects that men came in with stuck into various orifices <laughs> and uh... You know there was a story about this bloke. A man had turned up with this ketchup bottle rammed up his his nether regions, and he was trying to uh, trying to say to the uh, the nurses in the emergency room that he'd been shaking it, and he slipped, and he <laughs> fell on it, and he got stuck. And they said, "Don't worry, we've seen this before. <laughs> we, we 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 know how to extract these things without causing further damage. Don't worry about it." Uh, but. Uh, you know so men can be attracted to anything, why not their own bodies and there's there's worse things you know there's there's worse situations than that, as we can imagine you know nobody else is involved but
0: uh how hmm. well, I think it's it, it's an, it took me a while to understand it as as innate um, but I, well, the way that I conceptualize this and tell me if it's incorrect, but I think obviously you know most people are born, you know heterosexual so obviously you were born heterosexual but with this additional kink in your brain not kink in the, the sexy one, but like it's just a you know flipped wire that makes that that outward attraction go inward so it's like two things that are happening happening simultaneously again stop me if this doesn't make sense but rather yeah. than thinking that autogynephilia this this like as we would say like a fetish is innate it's the case that heterosexuality is innate and the um the compulsion, or not the compulsion—that's the wrong word—but the 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 automatic inversion of that heterosexuality is a different mechanism happening because because you see a lot of autoandrophilia in gay men. So I think that that potential to have the the sexual target be reversed is something that can happen, maybe more than we think, in males. And so I think when those two things, you know, that sexual inversion and heterosexuality collide. Those two things are innate. And I think that's what is autogynephilia. Is that accurate, would you say?
1: Yeah, I'd say it's accurate. I think it's, it's not that you are, your sexuality is completely directed inwards. That's not, it's not true. You know, men, 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 men can be attracted to multiple female, multiple women, heterosexual men will, you know, their attraction can uh, Mm -hmm. be be bitter many, many people. Uh, You know, middle-aged, middle-aged men have affairs in huge numbers. You know, and uh, there's there's some sort of biological driver to, to that, I'm sure. So, uh, so the fact that a man can be happily married and then have an affair with somebody else, and and they do, uh, the uh, the analogy here is uh, some man who's married and been married for many years suddenly comes out as trans. Well. Maybe he's just having an affair with himself. That's the uh, you know that's the analogy. And when you work when you work through those parallels, actually, it's pretty you know it, it's pretty striking when you're looking at the man who suddenly has an affair with somebody else, and uh, he can't help himself, and and uh, will risk all sorts in order to do that, yet. The autogynophile then uh, then transitions in midlife and 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 uh, takes exactly the same risks with relationships and with family and with uh, with employment even uh, to do that. The outworkings are, are different, but the parallels are very strong.
0: So yeah, so we, like obviously, I understand that that that, um, that competes with the regular heterosexual drag, but you're essentially saying that that the the internal the internal projection of that attraction can just be one of the many female objects you're attracted to essentially. And then I imagine for some that's more intense than others, right? Like so that the competition towards, you know, the attraction towards other people is pales in comparison to the, the inward attraction, or then it can be the opposite. Whereas like somebody may have some kind tendencies, but it's very minor Relative to their external attractions,
1: yeah, and it, and it's it, it's the it's these competing competing attractions. What why why, why does why does this happen? I, I've I've sometimes said that uh, my my sort of uh, gender dysphoria, if, I, if we wanted to go back and use that, it was something that was all all you know. There's there's always, I've always had these issues, but they were chronic and livable with, and you could just put them to one side. You could compartmentalize them, mm. but once you start looking into it. And once you start thinking about it, you ruminate on it and once you start ruminating on it it just it does take over and what actually what actually drove it from something which was a a chronic condition which I'd lived with for years to something which I just couldn't resist was knowing that transition was possible it was a it was a compulsion to transition uh not sure why that why that compulsion came from I'm still trying I'm still trying to work it out you know from uh you know, from psychological principles. You know, why, why did this happen? You know, what, what caused this? But uh, I've said, you know, I, I think I've, I've said publicly that if, if the prospect of medical transition wasn't available, I wouldn't have, it, it probably wouldn't have crossed my mind. I would have just carried on with life and, uh, and, and, and just not really thought about it. But it was when I became aware that medical transition was possible and not only possible, but people like me were doing it. Then mm. suddenly, I needed to do it too. Suddenly, I was very jealous of other people who who were doing it, and uh, so, you know saw so this. Well, if if you know if if somebody if this other person can do this, I need to do this too. I do wonder that if uh, if the treatment was you know if, if the treatment wasn't there, I would I wouldn't have had the need for it. And it does seem to me that medical transition is a is a treatment that does uh, does generate its own demand. If it wasn't there, then, well, we'd just, we'd, just, we'd just get on with life, wouldn't we? It's the very fact that it's there means that we need to do it. And it was in my early 40s, about 10 years ago, that I realized it was there and it was a realistic possibility. And once I, once I realized that, then there was nothing that really could hold me back.
0: I had the exact same experience that you've described. I've heard you describe it more in, in- and uh, additional detail in other interviews. And I had the exact, so I've never had any sort of auto eroticism, like that's not a por- portion of it, but you described having this this obviously intense desire to be a woman. It's almost like feeling that the mistake had been made, you, you, and, and, but it was a very shameful thing that you you managed, you kept internal. Greatest desire, but you couldn't ever achieve it, so it was just something that you kind of just didn't pay that much attention to. You could compartmentalize it, um, but yeah, again, some it was something that came with with an immense amount of shame, and I had that exact same that exact same experience. <laughs> it was also the same year. Well, no, I think that was 2011 when when I realized that it was a, an actual possibility. And once I realized it was a possibility, it was no, lo- literally it was impossible to compartmentalize it. And also because so many other people were doing it, the shame I always had for feeling that way disappeared. It was like, so so both the shame going and the compulsion, you're just, just be overwhelming. It was like, suddenly I had to tell everybody about it and I had to just go and do it. And then, so yeah, then then you got that a bit of, I didn't have any, like, I didn't have a um, like, you know, you know, a, a spouse or kids to think about. I was 27 years old, single. I just had friends and I was an adult. So my family didn't weigh that in that much about it, but everybody was quite supportive and positive. My dad was the only person who was just like, you know, he said, you love me and supported me and everything. But it was like, are you sure this is a good, he was like raising up concerns and criticisms, but I was like, no, that's all fine. No, 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 it's all great. You know, but that was the only, the only resistance I came up against was my dad. And, um, but even that was very minimal. So it was just like, full steam ahead there was uh yeah but but i know exactly what you mean It's like th- that that feeling of i've always wanted this it's actually possible oh my god this is so exciting and there's there's nothing that could get in your way yeah
1: yep yep I can, uh, empathize with that entirely Aaron. not yep once once it becomes a possibility you've got to do it yep. and this this is why i'm concerned about what's happening with children you know when i was a child children children didn't transition so there was no demand for it. it there was no demand created uh medical transition was not was not possible for children everybody knew that it wasn't possible you had to grow up first and uh you know and and find out who you were and uh, and become an adult understand what it meant to be an adult first whereas now we're uh we're making this treatment available to children and the uh, psychological impact on me in my 40s once i realized the treatment was available if that had uh, if that if if i'd been aware of that as a child then i don't you know the the the, the just thought of that is 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 horrifying really and that's what uh, that's one reason i've been uh, campaigning quite strongly against pediatric transition of any type i don't think this is something that kids should be doing and uh, Despite the fact that uh, you know, ten years on, I'm uh, you know I'm I think I'm sane. I'm capable. I'm contributing to society. So you can say, well, transition's worked for you, Debbie. You know, and you, you don't you don't have any plans to unwind it anytime soon. Uh, that's the fact that I transitioned once I was an adult and I, understand, I understood what it meant to be an adult. And I really do worry what's happening with children and the impact of the availability of that treatment on them. So what you said there, Aaron, you, know, you, you, were, uh, you, know, you, you were an adult, you were fully mature, psychologically mature as an adult. You know, if that possibility had been opened up to you when you were, say, 12 or 13, then it's a it's a different matter altogether isn't it and uh and how do you then cope with growing up finding yourself finding your place in society with this going on as well i really do worry about kids i think i think what's happening is a scandal
0: not only what it's what you know like, like what's happening to their bodies you know when, you, when you're you're already fully you know your body's fully formed and then you make this decision that's an entirely different ball game than halting puberty and just really interfering with the course of normal body development Um, so that's one facet of this the other thing why i'm well that's one of many reasons I'm, i'm totally against pediatric transition but another thing is is i know what i was thinking when i was 27 years old again i was as a fully mature adult i i can fully relate with how i felt then i understand it like i i was making a fully informed decision as best as you know you could given that given that compulsive drive but if i had been offered that decision at 12 or 14, and my parents had facilitated it. I do not know. I would never know as an adult if that was actually necessary. I would never know if I had outgrown it, if I could be physically fully whole, you know. And so, if you're a child, it's not. It isn't your decision. So that that decision is being taken from them. So it's just it's a completely different ballgame from my perspective.
2: The pushback that I um, hear from trans people who don't quite understand kind of the bigger picture that we're talking about. A lot of them say, well, I would have benefited from transitioning as a younger person. And it's so easy if you've transitioned as an adult and you're happy with your transition, it's easy to imagine yourself as that 10-year-old or 5-year-old or 16-year-old and, and imagine benefits of transitioning. And I would have done that probably, you know, five years ago even imagined, because I definitely had that early childhood type onset gender dysphoria. And I think, well, if I had been on puberty blockers, then I wouldn't have needed a double mastectomy, and then I wouldn't have had the scars, and maybe I would have um, integrated better with my peers in high school. But the p- part of the public narrative isn't that, you know, the 11 studies that childhood gender dys... Kids with, with um, childhood onset gender dys- dysphoria, 60 to 90% of them desist you know by or through adolescence i mean those are the are the parts of the the evidence and the narrative that is missing from the public conversation why would we transition kids like even if some of them would and would end up benefiting later in life as adults we have no no way of predicting which of those you know 10 10% would benefit and which which won't so why would we why would we transition all of these kids you know, when 90, 60 to 90% of them would have just resolved it and, and moved on with healthy bodies. And it's it's not about conversion therapy. It's it's about what's wrong with avoiding lifelong medicalization.
1: Well, quite. And uh, and what, what we're almost told, what children are almost told is you can choose which sort of puberty to go through. So you can go through this puberty and become a woman or you can go through that puberty and become a man. But only one can leave you as a fertile adult able to have more children. Uh, able to sorry, able to have children of your own. Uh, these are not equivalent pathways. One requires constant medication, which is working against the way in which your body naturally produces hormones and naturally and naturally develops. So you're working against that, and uh, it's not possible for you to have uh, children of your own. I'm sometimes said that you know, I'm sometimes accused of uh, of saying t- of talking too much about this, but I think there's a there's a biological driver in. In, in, in many adults to have to have you know, to have our own children if it, if it wasn't there the human race would would rapidly die out I guess you know that's you know so I don't think the two pathways are equivalent even though you know even though trans organizations can sometimes say that they are we're going back to this concept of the trans person you are a trans person therefore uh, this is, this is quite profound, very profound treatment that causes massive changes to your body, leaves you on medication, and uh, I just don't think that it's the sort of thing that we put, should be putting children in. And Aaron, you, you know, you're quite right in that uh, all the studies show that the vast majority of uh, childhood uh, cases of childhood gender dysphoria it evaporates in, uh, in in adolescence, and you know, we don't have. The large, you know, we've got a lot. Looking, looking at what's happening among girls, you know, the the outbreaks of what uh, Lisa Lippman referred to, uh, rapid onset gender dysphoria in these groups of teenage girls. All I hear from my female friends in their forties and fifties is they felt dis- detached from their sex in the same way that they were when they were children, but they've grown out of it, and they've they've no. They've no great wish to transition now. Why would you want to do that? Yet we're saying to children, unless you make this decision now, you, your life may be ruined. And I, th- I think it's wrong. And I think uh, I think what I come back to it. I think what's happening with children is very, very wrong. And uh, and it is a scandal. We hear we, we hear a lot about the impact on women's rights. And I'm, I'm sympathetic to women and maintaining their sex based rights. But uh, when I look at what's happening with children, I think this is a I think this is a much bigger issue. Mm -hmm. Uh, Children, you know, women can reclaim that women are in a position to reclaim those rights. Whereas once you've medicated and sterilized a child before puberty, they can never get that life back. We only ever live once. And I think that's I think it's wrong what's happening. Mm
2: even aside from the infertility issues, because not everyone necessarily wants to have kids, but I mean, these, these procedures aren't perfect. I mean, it, when you're left with, with scar tissue and you know, loss of sensation and uh, or chronic pain from some of these surgical procedures or the, the you know, long-term effects of, of hormone use, we, re- we really don't know. Like if someone starts hormones at age 14 and so they're on it for a much longer period of time, we really don't know impact on you know mortality or or their health you know when they're 50 or 60 so it's it's such an experiment it's it's really an uncontrolled experiment but i think the part that i probably object to the most is the ideological part of it i mean that the fact that we as adults bought into this this lie that there's such a you know that the gender ideology well what what chance do the kids have if that's not yeah. that what's being presented to them, is you know that everybody has a gender identity and you can just pick what's, which sex you are. Like it, it's such a it's just a, such a ridiculous notion, and it's such a vague concept. I mean, what what is gender identity then? If I ha- if I, if, I, if I'm a little girl that has some masculine personality traits, like th- does that mean my gender identity is male? Like it's it's such a whereas gender dysphoria, if we study it and articulate it, it can be more specific. But gender identity is such a broad, vague concept that anyone in theory could opt into the opposite sex for any reason.
0: Do you think yeah. that might be what the explosion of the non-binary identities in, in, in teenage teenage girls is is because they've absorbed this this notion of everybody has a gender gender identity and you can pick which one and, you know, you're balancing that masculine interest versus feminine interest and then so obviously the vast majority of people, if they're trying to balance their masculine and feminine interests the ma- vast majority of us are going to be non-binary. That's just kind of, you know, how, how human beings work. Um, so that was a bit of a sidestep. Go, go on, Debbie.
1: No. Well, isn't everybody non-binary, really? You know, right. is, is anybody the, uh, the full on caricature of what it needs to be male or, uh, or female? And I don't think any of us are. I think in some regards, we're all non-binary. But what we're doing here is it's like what we said about creating this trans person. We've also created this non-binary person as somebody with special uh, knowledge or special characters. Were what you're saying is you just don't you don't fit the stereotypes. Well, it's great. You know, none of us should be forced into fitting stereotypes, but we shouldn't then be uh, inventing a new gender right, to identify into as some sort of excuse. And I think that's that's where it gets sad. Where teenage, you know, I, you know, you, you two are are, are going. You two are far. Well, you two have knowledge about what it means to be a teenage girl. I don't. But what what from uh, observing from observing this. Uh, is that being a a teenage boy, you're getting the better deal the whole time than being a teenage girl. And I can see why people want to opt out of that. I can see why girls want to opt out of it without necessarily wanting to be a boy, because that's a big thing. But to opt out at this... Of what it what what the what it means to be a teenage girl growing into a woman, and uh, and the expectations and the temptation to uh, be able to opt out of those uh, must be must be quite big. And if you can say I'm non-binary, uh, and that uh, removes you from those expectations, I can I can see the attraction, yeah. but it, it's from a distance. And I'm talking to people who who uh, you know talking to you two who who who've been through this, whereas I haven't.
0: Well, and I think it's even worse though, because when all three of us were teenagers, there was no social media. There was no inundation of online porn. And I think what, what teenage girls are going through now is way worse than anything Aaron or, our, Aaron or our peers you know, in the in the 80s and 90s and early aughts uh, experienced. And I really, yeah, they're, they're fed all, all sorts, like the, just the, the mental health crisis in, in, in girls that's caused by social media. And I think, yeah, I think, you know, kids are seeing porn at such young ages and it's violent and they're traumatized by it and like yeah it's, it's just a there's it's a lot worse now i think to be a teenage girl than it was when we were yeah
1: yeah yeah I guess and you yeah and you can't get away from it you know that Mm-mm. social media started on the pc and you would uh you would uh, yeah. log in to check your message, and then you go away, away from it. Whereas now it follows you around everywhere. And to switch off, to switch it off, and the fear of missing out of what's being talked about behind your back is huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And then we had, then we had the pandemic. Because one place where children are protected from some degree from it is at school, because. We, uh, you know, we, we, we've, I'm a teacher, so we've got rules in schools about not having phones and uh, we're, we're quite strict on that. Now, I'm not, uh, I'm not so naive to realise that when children disappear off to the toilets during recess that they will uh, not be checking messages. You know, I'm not that naive. But to some extent, we are, we are protecting them from that, every, you know, that full on experience every hour of the day. Whereas then we uh, in the last two years, we closed the schools in Great Britain for two full terms and children were sat at home, presumably working at home, looking at a, looking at a zoom screen, uh, getting on with exercises that were set. And, you know, at that time, then there was nothing to stop them. Uh, yeah. Having the having the lesson going on on the screen with their camera blanked out. Meanwhile, their attention was uh, was elsewhere. And nothing was there to protect them. And that I worry about. I worry about the impact of that.
2: I have heard about, uh, yeah, like the rise of a number of different um, psychological disorders in teenagers through the COVID pandemic.
1: Yeah, yeah, shutting the schools for two terms, whether it was whether it was necessary or not, it happened. And the consequences, I don't think I don't think we've got to the bottom of it, the consequences on that generation of children who, during that formative years, which is so important, were basically stuck at home, living on the Internet and lacking that real life, con- real life uh, uh, interaction with other people when we really do, when bodies do matter, when, you, when you're actually meeting people, when you're eating with people and walking uh, around with people, your bodies do matter. When you're an avatar in a chat group, then it doesn't. And, uh, and the lockdown experience, uh, you know, exacerbated that, especially in young people. You know, they were living their lives on the Internet because... Yeah, our government said you can't go out, you can't meet your friends, you can't uh, do these normal things that children do. Uh, It was forbidden by law. So uh, uh, I worry about, I really do worry about the consequences on children and Mm -hmm. some of the impact now and the mental health crisis now must be due to that.
2: I lurk on um, trans activist Twitter sometimes, you know, especially with the young young people and, and just to get a sense of what they're saying and how they're thinking and I've noticed that a lot of them are using, you know, that avatar language or like the gaming language in regards to transition, that, that it's a skin and you can just switch out skins. Yeah. So it's quite alarming, this, this um, you know, the, the online mediated impact on identity development, that it is so disembodied.
1: Yeah and, and and it affects the way that you interact with everybody else you change you change that skin and people talk to you differently you interact with other people differently and this could be you know th- this is self ex- this could be self exploration but when you're uh, when you when you realize you have a real body that moderates that moderates those experiences you you then become a boy who's trying to uh, find out how it feels to some extent to be a girl and vice versa but you realize that because you're there with a real physical body you haven't really changed your sex but if you're if you're living in this you know in, in this second world second life uh, environment then you can do what you like supposedly and uh, but then you've got to come back to reality because it's it's in the real world where we eat we sleep we uh yeah you form relationships with each other we are we are complete human beings uh we're body as well as as well as mind you know the idea that our bodies are just some sort of devices to move our uh, minds around this face of the earth it, it's it you know it, it's not true it's it's a heresy that goes back it's a, a heresy that goes back years is that mm-hmm. and uh but it's easy to it's easy to get there when you when you're living when you're living online but we can't detach ourselves from reality you know we're, we've got real bodies that we need to look after we need to feed we need to clothe we need to uh uh you know and and it's because we've got real bodies that we uh, we're attracted to other people with real bodies that's that's what goes on in in real life and to separate us, ourselves out from that i think is uh it, it's setting ourselves up for uh for problems as we're seeing
0: Two, two things I just thought of is when we were talking about earlier about that, that disassociation of living online. Uh, Helena Kirshner talks a lot about that experience of like basically living online. And so it was very easy to kind of disassociate from her body and just, just basically um, just be this sort of avatar of a, of a you know, cute boy that she'd created. And then, but, but she had to go to school and like that would kind of pull her out of it, right? Um, and also that, that, kind of, that kind of Tumblr life was attractive to the really kind of nerdy or cerebral girls, not the outgoing popular ones. And but now but then in the, in the time of covid, it wasn't just it's not just the indoorsy cerebral kids who were on their phones all day long. It was all the kids, you know, and so I wonder how that's impacted maybe the more, you know, normy type. I don't know. Like I'm not kind of this just occurred to me, but I'm wondering how many more kids that wouldn't have been swept up in this were swept up in it because they were Uh, not allowed to be in real life amongst, you know, amongst people they really know. Um, And then the other thing, what you were just saying is about that kind of, about the physicality of your body and the physicality of other people's bodies, certainly as a teenager when you're developing sexuality and sexual feelings to just live online where you are disassociated from your body. And I think that's where we get this sort of like this, this new kind of liberal moral that Basically, if everybody isn't bisexual, you are, uh, you know, a bigot. You know, I think I think that has a lot to do with it, is because they don't, they have not ever physically experienced genuine, you know, attraction to somebody, you know, like or or at least not much, you know. And so it's it's very it's like everything else in their lives, it's a completely abstract concept. It's not rooted in their in their actual physical bodies and other people's physical bodies. So I'm wondering if that has something to do with the, the, our new understanding or the the contemporary. You know understanding of, of genitals are irrelevant in sex you know I, th- I think that could have something to do with it.
1: Yeah uh yeah two things happened w- at the same time one is that social media became ever more uh, intense and easy more easily accessible and secondly we cut we cut people off from reality and we are we but we are social beings and we do look for community and we do look for society we need friends we need family you know we can't we can't exist in a vacuum by ourselves uh but and it's what this attraction between people is you know it's human beings are complex you know we are attracted to people of our own sex we're attracted to people of the opposite sex and and this this level of attraction between people uh has evolved in, into us if it, if it wasn't there as I said you know the human, the human race would die out so there is different there are differences in the way that the, op- the, the two sexes uh, relate to each other people with different, different, different types of body but you get online and there's no need for two sexes online there can be any number mm. of different genders and patterns and, and trends online and uh, but we can't reproduce online that's the problem.
0: Hey, I can create a bunch of different accounts. (laughs) Well, you can, you can, can't you,
1: yeah. One
2: of the things that really struck me about some of your your recent writing, you you described what your experience was like as a a child, and and, um, despite the fact, you know, we have two different pathways to gender dysphoria, I was perhaps surprised and, you know, interested in the similarities in our experiences. Um, and it, it and I think I was surprised even that you that you did have memories of gender dysphoria as a child because I had always been under the impression that AGP emerges in adolescence. Do you have contact with with other people with AGP who who would say that who could point to something in their childhood?
1: Well, I, I've the problem is it's, it's getting people to admit that they've got AGP. Yeah. I can look at them and think, I think, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but we'll, we'll one, one just not go there. So people will use the fact that they've got early memories of struggles with gender, struggles with their sex, as proof that they're not autogynephile. Whereas I'm thinking, well, no, it's uh, we are who we are, and this is part. This is part of This is part of our character. Uh, it's part of who we are and how we relate to ourselves and others. So uh, I put it this way: I I don't know enough people who are quite happy to say, yeah, I'm an autogynephile to say that yes they they've got the childhood experiences as well but i hear enough people who are saying that uh, the fact i've got these childhood experiences means that i'm not autogynaphale i'm thinking no it doesn't <laughs> uh, and i don't think i don't think that we change in our i don't think our sexuality changes in its nature as much at uh, at puberty it just it just grows in intensity you know so what's already there just grows more intense. And I think that's, that's what happens. So what happens in young children, it's, you know, I've, I've memories myself from when I, from when I was young, but it wasn't something that gripped me. It was, it was when I got into adolescence and my testosterone never went up from uh, on the scale we use here from a, from what it was from diddly spot. I, I was at the top of the male range, you know, very rapidly. And, uh, and that has a huge impact on, on you know it grips you does that but it didn't change so much you know the way that I relate you know I remember as a as a six seven year old boy I would relate to boys differently to girls you know I knew that there was uh, I knew that there were two sexes we all knew there were two sexes as five and six year olds and girls and boys relate to their own sex differently to their other sex uh, so this is the you know this is the way these relationships work and uh, you know to say that you know that children of you know you know prepubescent children, five, six, seven year old children. It you know there's no difference between boys and girls. Well, it's, it's nonsense, isn't it? You know we you, you can see that you you can see uh you, you know if you put some children out in the playground, you know, a mixed sex, you'll see the uh, you'll see the girls react interacting differently to the boys. Uh, now you know some girls will, will be running around with the boys. You know, playing soccer with the boys. Some girls will do that and fine, and some boys will want to sit and read and, and quietly. But there's there's a there is a difference in the way that sex the sexes as a whole interact with each other. So that starts early, and if that starts early, I don't see why you know the the way that we interact with our own bodies and are attracted to our own bodies that shouldn't start early either. But what what happens at puberty is the intensity increases, and that's what happens in affiliate The intensity increases at puberty.
0: This is why I, I find it, so, I get in trouble for constantly calling uh, autogynephilia a sexual orientation, but it helps it make sense like I, I feel like, um, you know, just like, just like, you know, like so a, a, a gay kid is going like a gay boy is going to develop crushes, this happens crushes on other boys, like, like you know, kids they develop crushes on you know you, you can tell an, an orientation right like it, it's not sexual at that age but the orientation's there and that you are drawn to infatuated with you know typically you know the the, the sex that you will later grow up and want to have sex with but at, at you know at before puberty it's it's entirely chaste and just just infatuation or and so it's at puberty so, so that's why i think autogynophilia is the same as a sexual orientation is that you can like you were saying, Debbie, you were just you were just in, in, enamored by little girl's clothes. You didn't know why you thought it was weird and you knew it was shameful and you shouldn't be. But you were just obsessed with with clothes that the girls were wearing. And it, that was so So it was only after puberty that, that that became a sexual connotation with that prior to puberty, that orientation, that attraction's there. But it's completely non-sexual. As That's my understanding anyway. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It, it's what we mean by sex. You see. Uh this word sex is it, it's it's what's caused, it's what's caused these problems. It's a prurient sort of talking about sexuality and sexual intercourse. So we we even created you know we've created this word gender to treat, try and a uh, de-sex sex. I, I just think up. it yeah, I just think it's it's unnecessary. We're we we look in Great Britain at, at the United States as being uh, more prurient than uh, than we are on this. Uh but you know we are to some extent as well. But when you talk about sexuality, it's it's not it's not just copulation. It's it's the way in which we react as human beings to other human beings of the same sex and different sex, uh, and the and the opposite sex. And we do react differently, and uh, and it's part of our nature and it's part of our psychology to do that. Uh, what I find interesting about about me is that I I re, you know as growing up and even now. I, uh, you know, I interact with women like other men, do. you know, I'm not, I'm not, I, I didn't transition to be anything like a woman at all. And the, and the more, mm. the more I live in transition, the more I realize I, I'm not like women at all, you know, and uh, my friends are still men, mainly men. And, uh, you know, my interests are, are far more typically male interests than female interests. But having said that, you know, I'm, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a physicist, I did a, you know, did a degree in what's, you know, what's tip, more typically a male, attracts more men than women, but I'm married to a female physicist who, uh, and, she, and she will say that, uh, you know, when she was growing up, most of her friends were boys and, uh, you know, and her uh, friends now are generally men, but uh, that doesn't make her a man, you know, she's, she's a woman who's, uh, you know, got interests, which uh, some of her interests are more typical of, of men. Uh, it was just the way I came at this in the same. Well, actually, my int- you know, it, it's I didn't transition for anything other than it was really it was it was just to make my body more uh, to be more comfortable with my body, I guess. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I, I am I am still very typically male in in who I am and what I do and how I interact with other people.
2: Yeah, it is. It is frustrating how how squeamish people get. As soon as you talk about sexuality, that people do automatically kind of leap to, you know, yeah. just the the basic act of having sex. But <clears throat> so it, it's hard to talk about these things and how it relates to our to our sexual orientations without people sort of having a, an initial knee jerk reaction, especially when we're talking about kids, you know, because. People don't want to think of kids as having any sexuality, like, you know, like, don't talk, don't call kids gay or don't, don't say that kids have AGP. And yet people don't seem to be that concerned about the idea of kids being heterosexual.
1: Yeah, that's it, isn't it? We know we, we, we look at homosexuality and we look at uh, AGP and other forms of transsexualism as being, uh, you know, these things that happen whereas heterosexual heterosexuality is there as well but heterosexuality is so ubiquitous we don't notice it but our society is it, it's it, it's driven by heterosexual sexuality the way in which men and women uh react to each other and uh, even the even the, there's no sex yeah in in the uh in like the sex- sexual it's not it's the wrong word it's too highly charged but the way that uh in, you know, in, in the community, in society, groups of men will react to each other differently than groups of women, very much so. Is that sexual? Well, not in the way of sexual intercourse it isn't, but it's, it's due to our sexuality that we're male and female, and children are sexual as well in that regard.
2: Yeah, I don't think people realize, I mean, I probably don't even realize to the full extent how much social behavior and social um, organization is actually built around sexual orientation. It just, it just so happens that most people are heterosexual and, and our society gets organized like that. And we, we would see that in any, any species of animal. And we forget that we are animals with, with animal yeah. drives, right? We're just primates, a little bit smarter than monkeys sometimes. But it's, you know, I've really been, I've been interested in Paul Vasey's work with um, just looking at primate behavior and sexuality and, and how um you know homosexual behavior in monkeys is often social in nature it, it, so it's it's such, such fascinating such a fascinating look at our probably our closest um, cousin right and, and how these things play out in, in a in a natural setting without without society and our sque- our human squeamishness about these things.
1: Yeah, I read Carol Hooven's book Testosterone. I found it. I found it a really good read. That, and when she was when she was talking about the uh, the other species and the other great apes and the way in which the juveniles will uh, play with each other, and what we see about you know human children playing with each other. Well, you know that uh, groups of uh, of juvenile uh, you know group juvenile chimps will uh, will play with each other in the same way and. Uh, and it, it's, it, I, I just found, I just found her an that really quite, uh, a, a captivating actually. I was, uh, you know, I was, I was captured by her writing and, uh, and the idea that we are somewhat different to the other Grote apes. No, we're not really, we're just, uh, yeah, we just, yeah, we hope we're a bit smarter. Sometimes I wonder.
0: <laughs> we, we actually had Carol, uh, Carol Hooven on. She's one of our first guests way uh, uh, last year um but yeah that that book that book opened my i mean i guess i always understood obviously that we're sexually dimorphic mammals just like other sexually dimorphic mammals and, and we're, we're b- behaving along those lines um but just the just the extent to that and then it also really puts you in mind of of when we transition we're really we're really ignoring the fact that we are just sexually dimorphic mammals, like we're it's along the lines of other religions where I think we're we're kind of elevating ourselves above above, you know, the rest of biology and that we, you know, somehow somehow the, you know, the the laws of of biology don't apply to us, we're somehow, you know, whatever is going on in our head is so much more real and important than than the physicality of our bodies and what that means for species propagation or whatever else. but yeah it also you know cuz obviously I think I think the three of us knew more recently quite a bit get in the hot water with the, the 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 feminists just by how much I talk about how how natural um, uh, the variations between males and females are and that and that male sexual aggression is not is not a facet of societal creation you know society exists to for the most part I would say to to mitigate male aggression, and uh, so if, if, we, if society wasn't there, we would be like the chimpanzees beating each other up, and you know, like it's, and not we, we, Aaron and I wouldn't know, but you know, like, but you would, Debbie. You know.
1: Yeah, I think uh, I've heard zookeepers can become quite distressed when they see male chimps beating up the beating up the females. You know, they shouldn't shouldn't be doing this. Uh, yeah. It was from it was from Hooven's book where at one point she said that male male aggression was natural but that didn't make it right right and i think right. that was that was qu- that that was that i found that quite profound we're so used to being natural being good and natural being right yeah, and yeah. artificial being bad and artificial being, ro- being uh, wrong yet here we've got something this uh, this male pattern violence uh, this male aggression is is natural because we see it in other species but just because it's natural doesn't mean to say that it's right. And as a society, we've got to work against our nature at times in order to build a uh, to, to to build a coherent society.
0: And Carol also has a really good point along those lines: is we have to understand our nature, we have to understand our base impulses in order to correct for them, in order to you know to to, to do what's to do what's right. Uh, and if we just pretend that we aren't, you know, kind of genetically programmed to operate in a certain way if we pretend it's not real then we can't really correct it you know yeah or work to mitigate it yeah
1: yeah yeah if we we pretend it's not there it's it's still there it's just we don't uh, we we don't do anything about it yeah and then wonder why it keep wonder why it keeps appearing (laughs) yeah thinking what's going on here yeah 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 no i i did find i did find i did find carol's book uh really uh it's it, it it had it had a huge impact on me did that did that book about testosterone as, as somebody who is who lived with you know high levels of testosterone for half my adult life and now it's uh now now it's you know it's much lower it's in the it's in the normal female range is my testosterone now but i'm still the same person and uh but it it, it i do i do react i do react differently but not differently. I guess it's, in t- I guess the, the orientation has never changed the direction of how I react doesn't change. It's just that intensity. And, and that, uh, Oh yeah. It, it was that as, uh, before I transitioned like other men, if you're provoked the point of, uh, of reacting, you really have to apply every technique not to go and thump somebody or, uh, you know, or, or make an embarrassment out of yourself. Whereas now, I'm much, uh, you know, it, it, it things can wash off yeah. much easily, much easily, much more easily now. But I, the, I even say it's not the direct. It, it's it's just the intensity of the emotions that have changed. The emotions are still the same. They just changed the intensity.
0: Yeah, I, I suppose Aaron and I we've had you know, that, that experience, but in the other, other direction, right. Is like, um, you know, with, with the addition of testosterone, I started feeling anger physically. Like I, um, it wasn't just something that happened internally. It was like, my I felt like I had to physically, resp- I'm never, vi- I'm not violent at all, but like, I still felt like I felt anger physically. Um, and then, but I, I wouldn't actually be thinking about this is I'm somewhere between the two of you, I think, cause I had, um, I, you know, I grew up, you know, very, je- I was a hardcore tomboy growing up very much. Um, gender nonconforming, um, gender dysphoric. And then at puberty, I was heterosexual. I was only attracted to men. But that feeling of I was supposed to be a boy, I wanna be a boy, never went away. That continued along my, until I was 27. I, I always talk about I think I'm gonna grow, grow it and I just never outgrow it. Um, so then I was 27, again, I've carried that shame a bit with me all that time. Um, and then so, and then when you hear with, with uh, female to male transition is that you're, they all, all the, you know, the lesbians, the butch lesbians suddenly find themselves uh, attracted to men. And I was like, weird, testosterone makes you attracted to men. That just makes no sense biologically, but, but obviously I'm already attracted to men. So nothing's going to change there. And then I start taking testosterone I was on the, the 0.2 uh, 25, uh, basically half the doses you'd normally be prescribed. And suddenly I became very attracted to women. The attraction to men was still there, but the attraction to women was very sudden, very intense, and uh, probably took precedence over the attraction uh, to men. And then a few years later, I was bumped up to the regular 0.5 dose, uh, start taking that dose and suddenly, my attraction to men completely disappeared and my attraction to women or females rather, females in general, dramatic, you know, like that was if the soul. And so I was wondering like, is this the testosterone? Like what, what happened here? Um, and then, but I'll go months sometimes for various reasons, months without taking testosterone and the orientation directed at females doesn't change but the intensity of it diminishes. Like men don't become attractive again when my testosterone lowers. So I do wonder what my, I, I imagine my base orientation has always been gynophilic. And then, but the dysphoria, because I was wished I was a lesbian, it would explain my uh, my masculinity and everything like that. Um, but I've just found female bio, female anatomy repulsive. I was just like, no, why, why would I duplicate this thing that's so disgusting on me? And then, but once once my sex drive turns way up, and I think there's also the placebo effect of dysphoria, you know, lessening with the the transition steps. Um, suddenly, you know, like that. All that went away, and and the that that envy I felt towards men, that envy and attraction, that went away. They they kind of just didn't really. They were relevant after that. Um, but yeah, so it's it's interesting. Uh, I, I I keep hounding you know, the 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 the, <laughs> the the sexologists in our sphere. It's like, dude, female sexuality is so much more interesting than male sexuality. Why do you give this stuff so much attention?
2: <laughs> because I've never heard that happening with. Um the hsts trans women where there were gay men really effeminate gay men they took estrogen and now suddenly they're not like that i've never heard that happening
0: no no but but the, the, the autogynophilic version happens i don't know i don't think this is your experience debbie but you know when you start transitioning suddenly a lot of them develop a, a sexual attraction to men but i think that's more sort of that a, a pseudo-bys- that pseudo that yeah. pseudo where you're trying to you're trying to, to 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 validate you're trying to complete your that sense of self as a woman. And when I learned about all this, I was like, maybe I do have AAP and my attraction to women is just a man, of, but but it's not like it's, I'm completely neutral in my sexual attraction. It's like, I'm irrelevant. Um, so I don't think I'm using like, it's, yeah, it definitely feels very like subconscious and natural and not like a mental game I'm playing to validate something. Um, but yeah, I definitely, you know, kind of considered that possibility. But,
1: yeah, I can see the the pseudo bisexuality is interesting though in in that that male to female transition will transition then become interested in men and the they say this is well, does is my sexual orientation changing? Whereas the uh, the theory is that, uh, the men are not they're not necessarily attracted to the men but the men are part of the uh a part of the fantasy in order to validate them as as women so hence the term pseudo bisexuality which makes a lot of sense really mm-hmm. uh yeah i you see i i was i was very fortunate i, I was married and uh, i'm still married and we we worked through it so the uh you know the 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 partner and the the need for that intimate relationship on a mental level and uh was was always i I never needed to go on you know that 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 was always that was always there uh i do you know but for uh for people who are transitioning male to female though i keep getting into trouble for that terminology i get said you can't transition to female i said well i know you can't become female but it's 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 a term that i use but people who are doing that without uh Without a partner, without somebody to uh, you know to, to talk to to be with, it must be really difficult to try. You know, you're 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 doing this in a vacuum, and then you transition, then you find you don't fit in properly. You know, trying to trying to find you know, trying for a for a you know for a male transsexual post transition trying to find a partner. Well, you know, it's you, you're looking at, at a small group of a small pool of people. Really, it's it, it's not you know. It's not great it really isn't uh yeah i'm not sure what yeah but uh the concept of who we are and who we're attracted to and why is interesting but again it, it's something else that we we don't really talk about no and it really uh,
2: should be talked about you know prior like i mean there's lots that should be talked about prior to transition i mean one is one is how important is it to you to pass is something that should be talked about, it, you know, because if, if someone has a physicality that they're probably never going to pass, and that is a really, they're really hopeful that that's going to happen, and that would be a make, make or break their satisfaction with their transition, that really should be discussed with people beforehand, yeah. and it doesn't seem to be. But the other is is that sexuality and partnership aspect, because that seems to be one of the points that causes regret for people um is you know let's say they're let's say they're a lesbian and are attracted to lesbians they transition they're still attracted to lesbians but now lesbians aren't attracted to them right and now who who are their who's their dating pool are they going to date straight women like it it becomes very confusing post-transition
1: yeah i guess you're looking for bisexual women who uh, you know who, who uh, don't but, but again it, it's it's the pool it's the pool of people. it's finding people and it's 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 not easy, but the, this is this is not talked about you know we, as you said before, and we've created this concept of the trans person you are trans that you you therefore must transition, and the consequences of it are just not not considered not considered at all and they this, this should be. when it comes to passing, you know there's there are I think two levels of passing there's the there's the passing where you are uh, you uh, you you just taken for the opposite sex and people are uh, astonished when you come out to them. I, I do ha- I do know a trans person who I uh, I didn't re- I didn't realize this person was 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 transsexual. I just I just thought this person was a woman, and uh, we were in a group of people, and I thought I thought there were uh, there were a partner because there was some female partners that you see, and. And and no, no, I'm transsexual. I transitioned 30 years ago. And and I think that level, that level of pasting is is it is one thing. But there's also another level. It's it's putting across enough visual clue, enough clues that when you pass people in the street, they may clock you as as male transsexual, but there's enough there's enough signals there that it, 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 it that the not the illusion hole, uh, illusion's the wrong word for it, but It holds and and they can cope with this and it fits into it fits into the worldview. If you can't get that far, then what does transition actually mean? You know, if if you can't do that. So when if two, three, four years down the line, you're walking down the street and uh, and people see you as a man and, uh, and and don't see you as anything else, then what 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 has transition actually meant? Is it is it no more than a demand that people use these pronouns, which are incongruent with uh, with re- perception of reality? You know, is that is that all it is? Well, that's not very satisfying, is it not? You know, it's not satisfactory at all. Uh, so I do think I do think we should be talking about this. Uh, you don't. I don't think you've got to get to the point where it's uh, you're unclockable, but you do need to get to a point where you fit in with other people's perceptions of reality, because otherwise it's not going to work. It really isn't.
2: There do seem to be a fair number of people, and it seems to be increasing, that where they want to occupy that, that middle yeah. ground. That yeah. They want they to transition in order to seem ambiguous, and they're disappointed if they, if they start to pass too much.
0: I think but, it's much more common, though, in, in the female transitioners yeah. than the male transitioners. Yes. No, yeah, I, I see... What, you were, what Debbie was just describing what you're saying about, um, you know, like when you're walking down the street and what is it that somebody perceives, it's like, I live in a progressive college city where there are a lot of clearly, young people who are clearly female, they're presenting in quite a feminine way, actually, like makeup and um, what have you. Um, but they've got very deep voices and some other masculinize- masculinization going on. So it's very clear. And a lot of them have the key him or they them like, you know, pins on them, you know? Yeah. So it's very clear that they're trying, to, like they, they've, they've taken medical steps. They've taken testosterone. Their voice sounds quite masculine, um, but they're clearly presenting in a very feminine way. And that seems to be the point. And it's, and it's like this, this just youth fad currently. And, I, when I talk about detransitioners and like mostly what we're seeing now is the, um, the binary detransitioners who's like the, um, say with the, with the female transitioners is, is um, people who were, were intent on living as men. And then they were like, this is not what I wanted. This is not, for whatever reason, they realize they've made a mistake and they undo it. But so many more I'm seeing now that the trans has become so popular and such like this, this youth subculture to belong to is so many of these people are like micro transitioning just for that trans label. And then how, how what does regret of that look like? It's like, you don't, it's so abstract. Like what you've done is just like, I, I don't know how they're gonna conceptualize that. I don't know what this reckoning is going to be but there's just so many of them. And yeah, anyway, I just wonder what that's gonna look like down the line.
1: Yeah, what 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 what's behind this you know how does this help how does it help anybody live their lives that's 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 one to know if somebody wants to uh, you know shrug off the uh, expectations on their sex I'd say go for it you know mm. uh sometimes I make jokes about people with blue colored hair and the like but you know that people have always colored young people have colored their hair when i was when i was young people used to I, I never did i was uh not not the sort of thing for me but others did and uh if people want to use their them pronouns in some ways that right, uh, yeah. you think well what what's what, what's the what's the big deal uh there's two things that bother me one is the uh one is the insistence that everybody else joins in your your particular worldview which i don't think we can do that I think we've always got to compromise in what we want and what everybody else wants. Uh, But secondly, there is this, uh, what I worry is the attraction for, uh, yeah, it's the medical, it's the medical transition. If you're, if you're really serious, you're, you know, there's the steps along here. And then it's young people seeking out medical transition before, before they're in a position where they can really understand what it means and understand what it means to be an adult that's that's what that's what worries me there if it was simply just the latest expression of you know youth culture then fine you know not particularly bothered about that as long as uh you know as long as you still do your work and you still uh you you still do the chores and you do what you do what's necessary because we've all got to uh you know we've all got to do our bit here that's 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 where i would come from there but uh there's nothing special about this, you know. You just you're just somebody who, you know, who was, you know, who who doesn't fit those stereotypes perhaps a little more strongly than others, but creating this special idea that there are trans people and these special non-binary people as somewhat set apart from everybody else, then uh, I think we're fooling, you know, that people are fooling themselves and trying to fool each other there. Yeah.
2: I remember 15 years ago when I transitioned, there were a lot of, um, there was a lot more assessment then. And I remember filling out quite lengthy um, screening forms and they would ask questions about, you know, sexual fantasies and who are your partners. And, and I I remember there were people in the community that really pushed back on that and they were, they were framing it as, well, this doctor is such a pervert that they're asking questions about sex and my fantasies and who I want to have sex with. And um, and unfortunately, it seems like what the medical community has done is they took that criticism to heart and they eliminated all of that, r- rather than helping us to understand why those questions are important and what the purpose of those questions are. Because we didn't really have many trans elders 15, 20 years ago to to help us understand, well, it's kind of important to think through that, because if you don't, you end up in this situation. So it, we've really lost... Yeah. A lot, you know. We've we've done such a disservice, I think, to this generation to not um, to not be able to guide them according to what we've what we've learned as people that have been through this and have just eliminated all of that instead.
1: Yeah, we, we've we've talked about gender identity and uh, and ha- how un- I, I you know I think it's unhelpful. I don't think we share those ideas. We've talked about gender dysphoria, but what we and uh, um, what that actually means. But fundamentally, what's the core of this? There is some medical treatment. That's what there is. And whatever whatever, uh, diagnosis we put there to access it is less important than the fact, is this treatment going to improve somebody's life? If it is, if it's improving somebody's life, then there's an argument for it. But if it's not going to improve somebody's life, then uh, why, why have some treatment if it's not going to improve your life and actually make your life worse? And I fear what's happening in, in, case, in case, well, we see it with the transitioners who are saying this overtly, but people are having treatment and it's not improving their lives. And those sort of questions which you, you spoke about there, Aaron, those are the questions which we need to ask in order to discern, will this treatment improve your life or not? If we don't ask those questions, we don't know.
2: Yeah, and if it's a young person that's never had a relationship, they're probably not thinking those aspects of it through. I mean, the transition impacts different um yeah. different dimensions of our of our lives, mm-hmm. right? It it impacts our social lives and, and you know our, our friends, our families, our partnerships and those different domains of functioning, I think need to be examined and, and addressed and thought through before transition. And I don't think a young person has the capacity to do that. If they don't have the life experience to have experienced any of those dimensions
1: yeah, they don't and the and the consequence and the consequences of it. And, it, you know, I've talked, I, I sometimes talk about, uh, you know, having our having children of our own. And I know that's not the be all and end all, uh, be all and end all of it. But we don't allow children to uh, present themselves at 15 and say, I don't want any children of my own. So can I be sterilized now, please? You know, can I have a vasectomy now? We, we, we wouldn't we don't permit that. Uh, but going beyond that, it is building relationships, and uh, within uh, society, and relationships both work both ways. We can't demand of the rest of the humanity that uh, build relationships with us as 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 we exactly as we want. It's always a two way process. And if somebody's uh, if somebody's presenting in such a way that everybody else will uh, will uh, take two steps back from then is that helping that individual? Because we, 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 can, we can make all sorts of uh, constructs in our head, but we are, we are social beings and we need our relationships with each other. You know, we, we do need those things. And if, if, by, if by these processes, people are cutting themselves off from, uh, from relationships with others, then is it improving their life? That's always the question that we should we need to be asking. Absolutely great conversation yeah yeah it's it's lovely i say it's lovely to meet you two yeah the two aarons uh yeah yeah we we've we've chatted uh well we sent messages to each other but this is the first time we've actually uh talked to each other which is uh which, which is really good thank you
0: yeah a long time coming yeah it's been a great conversation thank you very much debbie
1: oh you're very welcome
2: thanks for joining us for this episode of the transparency podcast if you enjoy our content Please help out our algorithm by hitting like or subscribe. If you'd like to make a donation, follow the link to our PayPal account. On behalf of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, thanks for your support.